0: Friends, we are indeed in Acts chapter 17 as we continue to march through this beautiful and important book. I'm going to read for us starting in Acts chapter 17 verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women in high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Let's pray together. Lord, We are absolutely dependent on you for your spirit to move in this place, hover here in this space to implant your word in our hearts and for us to be those like the noble Bereans who receive your word, your son with all eagerness. Let it be so, we ask in his name. Amen. Friends, quiz question for you. I know reading is out of style, but name this novel. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity, it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities, that's his famous opening lines, It sounds as much like Thessalonica and Berea in Paul's day as it did uh, Paris and London in Dickens' day, because our passage is kind of laid before us to show us there are some things that are the same about the approach to each of these cities, and there are things in our passage that are very, very different in how that message was received. So it's laid before us as a comparison and a contrast, and we're going to look at each of those. First, the comparison. What was the same between them? And the thing that stands out as the same in Thessalonica and Berea was the missionaries' team approach. So Paul and his team, after Philippi, they are back to their bread and butter approach to evangelism. And that is you find an urban center, you go there, you find the synagogue, you preach Jesus from the Old Testament, you invite a response, and then you run away as fast as possible when the stuff hits the fan and people want to kill you. So clearly, our text is showing us that this is a Bible-based approach. It repeats it for our benefit to see that this is how they're preaching the gospel. Look at verses 2 and 3. They get to Thessalonica, and Paul reasons from the scriptures, explaining and proving it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Then they go to Berea in verse 11, and it says, They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So clearly, the team is using the Bible to evangelize. Now, Paul is a missionary, he's an exemplary missionary, and he contextualizes his message wherever he goes. That's a fancy way to say he preaches in a way that his audience can hear him. And so when he's here and there are Jews and they have their Old Testament, he's happy to open up the Bible and preach the gospel when we get to Athens in a few weeks, and there aren't many Jews, and nobody has the Old Testament, he doesn't start there with the Bible, but instead he goes other places, like to their poets and their religious texts, and warms them to the idea of God with the same biblical message. So same exact message, we're talking about Christ and him crucified, but sometimes we open our Bibles, and sometimes we start somewhere else. That means for us today that there are also places that's appropriate for us to sit with an unbeliever, literally open the scriptures, and explain to them about Jesus. And then there are places that it's just not contextually appropriate to drop a leather-bound copy of our Bibles on the table and start to talk to somebody about the, the gospel. Sometimes we need to start somewhere else and warm them up to that idea before we do that. But here's what I'm learning slowly but surely. That here, especially in the South, even with all these Yankee transplants coming here, like myself and many of you, an open Bible approach is more welcome than we typically think. More people, I almost guarantee you, are ready to sit across the table with you and your Bible than we think or than statistics would show us. So each of us in this room, if we're a member of this church, we are called to be disciples who make disciples. We grow up in our union with Christ and worship and community and outreach, which means every single one of us is finding our role in evangelism that terrifies all of us, but we are praying alongside each other to do that and to learn that. And if we don't have those avenues, we have places in the church to get plugged in. So one of the ones I'm very excited about is when we do our back porch gatherings, You've got men who gather with men, women who gather with women. Believers bring seekers to those locations and we sit and we open up the Bible and we answer questions that a seeker might have about God. So this is wonderful. So we don't have a guy's one on the calendar. The women's one is literally happening on Tuesday. Kelly, are you going to be there for that? Would you raise your hand so that if you are a believer and you have a seeker, you come talk to Kelly and it's Tuesday night and it's fantastic. So the last couple of guys ones I was at, I would go, and it's me and another pastor. You got 40 or 50 people in the room. They're asking all kinds of questions, um, and we were trying to faithfully answer those questions. After I had done it once or twice, the guy who invited me, the host of the whole thing, he called me afterwards to kind of debrief and said, hey, man, it's going great. Love what you're doing. Love your answers. Um, I sense that you're quoting the Bible, but you don't physically have a Bible, And so I know you're using the Bible, but I don't think they know you're using the Bible. Could you bring your Bible? Because when you don't bring your Bible, they might think it's coming from you, and I want them to know it's coming from God. I was so embarrassed when I hung up the phone. The the pastor forgot to bring his Bible. I thought it would intimidate people. But sure enough, at least in that context with that audience, it gave authority to what we were talking about. This is not my idea. I didn't come up with this. This is sitting here in the written word. This is where we go to hear from God. That's Paul's approach. Wherever he goes, he opens up his Bible in both cities. It's the exact same approach. And you've got to love Paul and Silas trying it back to back. You get poor results in Thessalonica you think there would be a change, but they'd turn around and do the exact same thing in Berea. You would think that when you tried it in Thessalonica, getting chased by an angry mob would take the wind out of the sails of a Bible-based approach to evangelism and discipleship. It's like once they ran away and got to Berea, they circled up as a team and said, look, I don't think people want to hear from the Bible. Let's try something different. Let's have some sounds and some lights and some jokes and a flaky, feel-good, motivational message. Maybe people will like that. Nobody gets crucified for telling jokes. Let's try that in Berea. But the team doesn't budge one bit. They get chased in Philippi. They get chased in Thessalonica. And the approach stays the exact same. Go where the people are. Open your Bible and tell them about Jesus. What might get you crucified in one city could turn out to be a revival in another city. The approach stays the same. It did for them. May it do so for us. Let us be faithful to this word and this message for the sake of our city. So that's what's the same. That's what doesn't change. That stands at the center. But the contrast here is, of course, how people receive this same message. We're meant to see that contrast right away because we learn in verse 4 that only some were converted in Thessalonica, whereas in verse 12, many were converted in Berea. And then we hear in verse 11 that it says of the Bereans, now these Jews were more, more noble than those in Thessalonica. So those in Thessalonica reject Jesus. Those in Berea largely receive Jesus. And let's look at each of those responses just very briefly. The Thessalonians, they hear the scriptures reason to them. They hear about Jesus. And by and large, most of them reject that message. And we read in verse 5 and following the power of unbelief at work. The people's rejection in Thessalonica was not just personal and private. It wasn't each heart weighing this and saying, you know, this isn't for me, not here, not now, not at this time. It wasn't personal and private. It was corporate and public. We don't want Jesus, and we don't want our friends to want Jesus either. It's a bold rejection of the gospel. They gather a mob together. They look for Paul and Silas. They can't find him. They grab poor Jason. They put him in front of the city authorities and they make these two accusations against them, which is super profound. Look at verses six and seven. They say, number one, these men have turned the world upside down. And number two, they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now friends, I hope with all my heart that we are so faithful to our calling in this city in Christ that our neighbors could bring these two charges against us and have a world of evidence to prove it. That we have an allegiance to Jesus over the world, that we have an allegiance to Jesus over Caesar. Think about both of those charges, what's being said there. Number one, that this group has an allegiance to Jesus over the world. They're saying these men have turned the world upside down. Now it's interesting because the Thessalonians sound like the Philippians who just complained back in Acts chapter 16 that these men are disturbing our city. Now it's expanded. They're going city to city. They are turning our world upside down. Now that's a curious charge to me because it feels like it gives a whole lot of credit to Christians. I mean, doesn't it seem to give us more credit than we deserve? I thought Christians were just a bunch of soft, naive, anti-science hippies singing love songs to Jesus. I mean, how could this little ragtag group here in this room with this quaint little message about someone we said who died and rose again from the dead, how could that disturb anything? We can't overturn Roe v. Wade. How are we possibly turning the entire world upside down? But friends, behold the power of a church bent around the resurrected Christ. Behold the spirit-filled power of a community of believers bent and molding ourselves around The resurrected Christ. That's going to stand out in this place and in this culture at this time. You see, the world is moving in a different direction. It has its way. It has its course. It has its worship. It has its liturgy. It's doing something completely different. In fact, Paul calls it in Ephesians, the course of this world in which we're born into. We could think of it as a rut or a current. You're born into unbelief. You walk in unbelief. You keep going because people are being born into unbelief behind you and pushing you ahead into the course of the world. And we're all moving in the same direction. And we're being discipled in this direction. We're being taught in this direction. We can't unchoose this direction. We move with the course of the world. And this is the world's gospel. Put yourself and your desires first. That's what's chief. You are chief. You are on your own throne. Put yourself first. Be what you want. Love who you want. Believe what you want. Satisfy any desire that comes to you because the physical and the spiritual world, it will reorganize itself around you because you are at the center and everything else is subservient to that. But for the course of the world to work, everybody's got to be on board. Everybody has to agree. Everybody has to nod and go along with what we're saying. Everyone has to agree not to disagree that what is right for you is gospel truth for you and that the only wrong a person could do is to turn around and say another person is wrong. That's the only way that this is going to work in harmony together and that's happening in dramatic ways in our culture like when a trans college athlete can dominate female sports, it will only work if we all smile and nod and say there's nothing wrong with this. But it will also creep in in subtle ways in which the course of our world is moving in such a way that whatever you look at on a screen or whatever you purchase for yourself inside or outside the church won't bat an eye anywhere because the world will mold itself around you. It's against that tightly controlled world narrative That Paul is later going to write back to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For you yourselves, church, are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security. Do you hear people today saying there is peace and security? Where you are, there is peace and security. There's nothing wrong with you. While they are saying that then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Paul was woke before woke was cool. Paul is saying a woke Sober believer is going to stand out in this place like a sore thumb. They disrupt the narrative. They call a spade a spade. They put to death the indulgences of a flesh. They start moving in a different direction. They become the chief repenters and confessors in a community, owning the sin that is within them. And that looks incredibly awkward and countercultural to the world. And while we all agreed that we were moving in one direction, these people start to be converted and they turn around 180 and start moving in the other direction and that's not going to work for the world because you're not agreeing with what we're saying. You are moving in the opposite place saying the Spirit has spoken. As for me, I will follow Christ. And the moment you turn in the wrong direction and the moment you bump somebody's shoulder going in the opposite way, Jesus says the world will hate you for it. They'll hate you for it because you are not agreeing to what we agreed in the beginning These men and women have turned the world upside down. They won't go with us. They won't go with us on the campus. They won't go with us in the workplace. They won't go with us in the neighborhood. They won't go with us in our family and our generational sin and the narrative we have for ourselves. They won't go with us. They keep going in a different direction. They are turning the world upside down. May it be, believer. May it be. But number two... They have an allegiance to Jesus over Caesar. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. Can you imagine the honor of getting charged with this? That would be like the world saying, I don't get these American Christians. They don't make sense to me because they won't fit nicely into our two-party political system, but they keep saying that there's another king that stands outside of this, and his name is Jesus, and he goes first. What would it take to earn that charge? What would it take to be accused as the church of what we got accused of 2,000 years ago? How do we re-earn the accusation that we've got a King Jesus who stands over our political landscape today? Tim Keller wrote an op-ed in the New York Times and it had a great title. It simply said, how do Christians fit into the two-party system? They don't. They don't fit into the two-party system. Now he goes on to say we can't be apolitical and hide under a rock and not participate because that's not loving our neighbor. But nor can we go to the other end and assimilate into a political party adopting its entire package because neither Democrat nor Republican nor Independent can fully capture what it means to follow Jesus. Amen? It cannot capture what it means to follow Jesus. I know when we vote, we say to ourselves and each other, I'm just voting for the lesser of two evils. Do you know your party's evils? When you go to the polls, do you know your party's evils? Do you vote according to your conscience and do you repent and weep before the Lord knowing that whatever political party I stand with, I have evils in the camp to repent of? Come, Lord Jesus, come. We've got an allegiance to him over political idolatry. But that's going to show up in another way, this allegiance to Jesus over Caesar, as our nation continues to shift against the church because we will not bow to any man where God has spoken. Now let's be careful here because if the government, forbid it, says walk a mile in a place that God has not spoken, Jesus says walk two miles and walk it with a happy heart. God hasn't spoken here this does not break my conscience, I'm going with you. But if the government says walk a mile in a place that God has spoken to, well then church, we're gonna sit right here and we're not going anywhere. And let the world loudly and violently complain. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. And they keep saying that there is another king, Jesus. And that they must follow him first. Church, let us earn those twin reputations. Let those things be said of us, accused of us. That we have an allegiance to Jesus over the world, and over our political landscape. The Thessalonians, they largely reject this message because of that, because of the world, because of Caesar. The Bereans, they receive the message. That's radical. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time with the Bereans next week, so we'll get right to the core of the matter. Verse 11 says they received the word with all eagerness. So what is the word? What are they receiving that so many of the Thessalonians weren't receiving? What are they receiving that flies in the face of the course of the world and Caesar and his decrees? What is it but that word shown in verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. That's the word. It is Jesus the Christ in his death and resurrection. How fitting to read that word in the shadow of Lent, uh, Good Friday, and Easter. Forget the course of the world. Forget political idolatry. Like the Bereans, we are eager to embrace the once crucified, now risen Jesus discovered in this book and enjoyed in this life to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we proclaim you as Lord, you as King, you as ruler over all, and I pray that you would join us to yourself, and I pray that we would mold our lives personally, privately, publicly, corporately, around this risen and reigning sun, and that we will honor you as a church in all that we do to your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.